Welcome to the third episode of Solutions. I'm Elias. And I'm Grant. And today we are going to discuss making a living. Specifically, why and how incomes in the United States have not kept up with the cost of living, despite huge gains in our economy thanks to global trade and technological innovation. And how we can build a society where, in the wealthiest nation in the world, no worker should have to worry about how they're going to put food on the table. We'll talk about minimum wages as one of the possible avenues, but we'll also discuss the need to tackle this issue from several different angles due to the complexity of today's economy. For the readers out there, we also do all of our podcast episodes in a written format that you can always find at medium.com solutions, as well as on our subreddit at r slash solutions podcast. And if you want to discuss anything with us or have any episode ideas or just want to hang out, maybe debate us on something, we also have a Discord server that will be linked in the article and in the description. So, making a living. Grant, why don't you, uh, for those of us who might not be in the loop on just how serious this problem is for everyday Americans, why don't you walk us through some of the issues that are occurring? Absolutely. The problem lies in the fact that real wages, the value of wages uh, after being adjusted for inflation, have barely budged in the past 50 years. Meanwhile, the cost of living has increased, with housing prices raising uh, 34% since 1999. Americans are also living paycheck to paycheck, with over half reporting that they have little to no money set aside for an emergency, and 40% struggling to pay for basic necessities like food or rent. In addition to all of this, the contract workforce is also growing, with one in five jobs being held by contractors, some full-time and some using it as supplemental income. These workers often have income that varies seasonally or monthly, and while many of them enjoy the flexibility, this can also result in financial instability for those who are dependent on this income. In solving this problem, we'll need to not only account for those earning a steady wage that isn't high enough, but also for those whose income is less stable for various reasons. So clearly the financial circumstances for the average American worker have gotten worse over time. But why is this? We always hear about how the economy is growing, so there has to be an explanation for why businesses aren't passing down their increased profits to their workers. Some people have argued that this is the result of flawed business decisions that undervalue worker satisfaction. And this is often informed by the sticky wage theory, the idea that if you give people raises, they will want to hold on to those raises, and then it will be difficult to take them back when the company isn't doing so well. And there's a Forbes article that we've linked in the article that talks about how this economic theory has influenced a lot of business decisions for decades, but how the theory actually has some flaws and doesn't take into account the, um, the fact that greater worker satisfaction often results in increased profits. But in addition to executive decisions, there are economic factors that play into wages. Basic economic theory tends to hold true that more job offerings and less workers results in higher wages, as employers raise wages to attract workers. So inversely, when there are less jobs in an area and more people willing to work, employers have no incentive to make their job offers enticing. The most extreme yet increasingly common example of this is when there is one company in an area controlling the entire job market. We found a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research that examined county-level figures on wages and productivity and found that manufacturing plants that were the only ones within a given area had consistently lower wages regardless of the plant's productivity or profits. The study also demonstrated that unionization can be a good way to cancel out this effect, so even in cases where there wasn't any competition between employers, wages were constantly higher in unionized firms, which is a point that we'll be coming back to later on. 
part of why there is a lower supply of manufacturing jobs is due to free trade policies, which have allowed corporations to replace domestic labor with cheaper overseas labor. There are many who claim that the use of overseas labor not only causes Americans to lose jobs, but also negatively affects overall wages since overseas labor is cheaper and it increases the supply. There is certainly evidence to support this idea, as one study has found a correlation between regions exposed to Chinese competition and reduced wages. Most of these harms have been felt within a very specific economic community. However, on the whole, free trade tends to be a net positive due to the fact that it increases economic growth. For example, studies have estimated that the GDP of EU nations would be approximately 8.7% lower if the member nations were not able to freely trade with each other. Not only this, but the prices of goods are lowered as countries with lower production costs are able to compete in the market, thus driving the prices down for everybody. That doesn't mean that those who have been negatively affected by specific trade policies shouldn't be helped. The solution is to provide redistributive tax policies that take the gains from engaging in trade to aid those who are negatively affected by it, those being Americans that used to have uh, manufacturing jobs in the U.S. that have now been shipped overseas. So when analyzing how a higher supply of labor can result in less competitive wages, a natural question to ask is whether immigration plays a role in this. Immigration brings a high labor supply and reduces the amount of available jobs for citizens living here, which may lead to the conclusion that immigration brings down wages overall. A report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine examined 20 years of data and found that immigrants presented a net benefit to the economy and that the effect on wages is very small, but there were some negative impacts on the wages of laborers who did not have a high school education, as well as second-generation immigrants. Additionally, immigrant workers that are here illegally are more likely to be exploited by lower wages. Economists have many different views on just how severe this effect is on low-skilled workers. One estimate on the higher end of the scale from economist George J. Borjas puts it at about 800 to 1,500 lost every year due to immigration if you're a low-skilled worker, with others arguing that it's much less than that. What all of these economists tend to agree on, however, is that this isn't nearly enough to raise any alarms about letting too many people into the country. The truth is that immigrations largely contribute to our economy and overall growth, and even those who take Borjas's position on this agree that it would be unwise to cut back on immigration due to economic concerns. The better solution here is to take the profits that immigration brings to our thriving economy and use that to provide better wages for all low-skilled and low-educated workers, regardless of whether or not they were born in this country. So if executive decisions and economic factors have clearly led to a stagnation of wages over time, why hasn't the government done anything about it? Simply put, the actions of politicians and the government over the past few decades have been led by bad economic theory, namely neoliberalism and the idea that as long as businesses are doing well, that the wealth will trickle down to the workers down below and everything will be good. This is what trickle-down economics is, and it posits that cutting taxes and regulations for the wealthiest members of society will result in an economic growth and also increase tax revenue, because everybody will be making so much more money, and then the government can tax this large sum of money at a very low rate. The unfortunate thing is that it, it doesn't work, and there's no evidence to support the claim that it does. 
According to a study done by the London School of Economics, trickle-down economics hasn't demonstrated to be effective for 18 different countries spanning 60 years. Not only were tax revenues not increased, but neither were wages. The only thing that was increased was the disparity of wealth between the poor and the rich. For example, the Trump 2017 tax cuts, the last time uh, that we tried to implement a trickle-down style tax policy, uh, also saw a failure to raise revenue, which implies that the wages were not substantially raised or that there were a uh, massive increase in jobs. In short, trickle-down economics doesn't work because the wealthy, big surprise, like to hold on to their wealth. Despite this, trickle-down economics has been the dominant economic theory for the past few decades, and only recently are mainstream economists beginning to acknowledge the flaws of this economic policy. So in summary, the crisis of wage stagnation can be traced back to bad business decisions, a lack of jobs, and a lack of government willpower to fix the issue, thanks to being led by bad economic theories like trickle-down. The United States has fallen massively behind on this issue for decades, and it's time for policy to catch up with reality. So next we're going to look at whether raising the minimum wage is the answer to this problem. There is quite a bit of debate in this country regarding whether or not it's a good idea to increase the federal minimum wage. Most recently, Democrats attempted, unsuccessfully, to pass an increase of the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour in their most recent COVID-19 relief package. Were this to have passed, it would have raised the wages of approximately 27 million workers, according to a report by the Congressional Budget Office. The same report also claimed, however, that the raising of the federal minimum wage would also decrease employment as much as 0.9%. This specific claim, as well as other claims regarding the raising of the federal minimum wage having a significant negative impact on employment, have been challenged. Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts, Arun Drajit Dub, makes the argument that the same CBO report also admits that the income gains from the minimum wage increase would outweigh the reductions in income from job losses which demonstrates that the value of higher-paying jobs would more than compensate for the less significant increase in unemployment. Doob argues, citing research that he and other colleagues published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, that the increase of minimum wages on a state level have had no significant effect on unemployment in 138 cases of minimum wage increases from 1979 to 2016. While there was a decrease in jobs below the minimum wage relative to states that did not raise their minimum wage at all, there was also an increase in the jobs at the new wage. Low-wage job figures were not significantly affected, even when examining the most vulnerable group, that being of young, low-wage workers with no higher education. This isn't to say that a raise in the minimum wage wouldn't possibly have a negative effect on employment, but Dube argues that the minimum wage would have to be raised to a value not yet seen. So if we wanted to raise the minimum wage to like $40 an hour, yeah, that would probably have a pretty significant effect on, you know, employment. But outside of that, in reality, where we're fighting for $15 an hour, not quite. 
So a lot of different studies mention the disparity in how this affects different regions uh, of an area, how like a $15 minimum wage in one area might not be the same as the same type of wage in a different area. Um, and so there was actually a UK study that we looked at that examined national minimum wage increases. And it found that in the UK, the North had a harder time absorbing the cost of increases than the South. While the study did say that overall employment levels were barely affected, and it does acknowledge the gains that the national minimum wage has for low-paid workers, it also encourages governing bodies to consider the effects of raising the minimum wage on more vulnerable regions within the nation. So clearly, this concern is based in some kind of real phenomenon that we should be taking into account. But what we need to examine further is how serious these losses would be in the United States. So for this, we looked at a UC Berkeley study, which aimed to assess the effect of higher minimum wage on overall employment using a figure uh, known as the relative minimum wage ratio. Now, this ratio compares the minimum wage of a given area to the median wage of that area. Um, so the lower the number is, the larger the discrepancy is between the minimum wage and the median. The federal relative minimum wage today is 0.36, the lowest of any industrialized nation in the world. Increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour would take that value to the highest of any industrialized nation, being 0.68. In states that currently have low median incomes, such as Mississippi, this ratio could be as high as 0.85%. While this ratio is unheard of at the state and federal level, it isn't unheard of at the county level, where this value can be as high as 0.82. Examining data on a county-by-county -county basis, the researchers were able to determine that the minimum wage increase decreased poverty and increased wages, but never really had a significant impact on employment. Any harms that would be felt would likely be made up for by the increase in incomes, as we established earlier uh, when we were talking about the CBO report. So the thing that's important to remember about economics and economic studies is that there are a lot of different variables, and it can be difficult to draw general conclusions when you have lots of data. So like we talked about the UC Berkeley report that said, you know, the negative impacts are minimal. You had the UK report that looked at the differences between the different areas and how some areas could be negatively impacted more than others. However, when we look at the plurality of the data that has come out, and there's been some recent meta-studies that have attempted to pull all of this together, what we find is that the losses would most likely be insignificant compared to the gains made with regards to overall wages and poverty reduction. Additionally, a crucial aspect of minimum wage policies and how they are typically implemented is that they would be done gradually over the course of years in order to adjust for sort of the shock that happens um, in these more rural and less developed areas where the wages are lower. And so perhaps one option to avoid shock could be to allow each municipality to raise the wages at their own pace. Furthermore, any potential unemployment that could come from this could be mitigated through further policy that increases jobs. Every economic policy is going to have its positives and negatives, and while it's wise to have caution, of course, there are also situations where action is long overdue and something must be done. We believe that everyone deserves a livable wage and that raising the federal minimum wage to at least $15 would go a long way towards achieving that. 
Despite a federal minimum wage increase gaining popularity in recent years, we know from recent attempts, such as, well, as we discussed before, the Democrats being unable to uh, pass a $15 an hour minimum wage, we know that this is an incredibly politically challenging task. And people need a solution right now. We need to increase wages pretty immediately. So for this, we've come up with a couple ideas that don't require federal legislation, but can still help raise the wages. A good example of this would be state and local minimum wages. Uh, in particular, blue states and in blue cities with thriving economies, many organizers have had success raising minimum wages non-federally. Seven states, as well as Washington, D.C., have legislation in place to raise the minimum wage up to $15 an hour within the next few years. Another interesting way of going about wage increases is through something called a wage board. A wage board is a panel usually established by some state or local government that will convene and they'll focus on a particular industry, for example, fast food, and they'll get opinions from businesses, workers, and the general public and try to figure out what a good minimum wage would be for that particular industry. And then they are actually able to write it into law um, based on the results that they get from their analysis. Most recently, this was practiced by Governor Cuomo of New York State in 2015, who prior to this had failed to enact a statewide minimum wage of $15 for all workers, so he decided to use this method to see if he could raise wages for fast food workers, who make up a significant portion of the population there. Three months after the board was established, they decided to agree on a $15 wage as a reasonable amount, and the law was put into place. And then three years later, $15 for fast food workers became $15 for all workers. And of course, both of these were established to be raised gradually over time. Another big factor of wages is unionization. Unionized workers earn, on average, 13.6% more than non-unionized workers. This varies widely by demographic. Men on average see a 17.3% premium, and Black and Hispanic workers see 17.3% and 23.1% respectively. And yet, union membership is half of what it was in the 1980s in America, sitting at a measly 10.8%. Part of this has to do with the fact that the current fastest growing sectors are ones that happen to have never had high unionization rates. However, this decline also dates back to the Red Scare policies in the 20th century, that undermined unions based on accusations of communist affiliation. But now that we're in a new era where unions have 65% of public support, the highest it's been since 2003, now may finally be the time for unions to flourish. In the written version of this podcast, we've linked a great article by Dylan Matthews um, where he lists off some things that Europe is doing with their unionization that is very successful that the United States could possibly borrow. And one of those is negotiating at the sector level rather than at the business level. So instead of organizing with your company, you'd be organizing with, say, all programmers in an area or all fast food workers or something like that. Um, and so he lists a ton of ideas that um, I thought that I had never heard of before and that I think can be very successful. Another way of potentially raising wages would be targeted minimum wage policies. For example, uh, establishing separate minimum wages per county at the federal or state level and then tying that to a percentage of the median or living wage in any given area or on a per industry basis. These would have the possibility to be more flexible, 
uh, more politically viable, and more in line with economic variation between different industries and locations. And then another way that we can increase wages would be to increase the number of jobs, because as we discussed earlier, basic supply and demand theory holds true for the job market. When there are more jobs in an area, competition drives wages in favor of the workers. Diving into all the policy ideas and economic factors is its own solutions episode. But the recent American Jobs Plan by the Biden administration, which plans to put millions of people to work rebuilding our infrastructure, is an example of good policy, in our opinion, that would help further this goal. So clearly, raising wages is very important and could go a long way towards ensuring financial security for many Americans. However, there are a few reasons that this isn't the end-all be-all solution. Firstly, not everyone who works earns a wage. About 36% of workers and growing due to companies like Uber, TaskRabbit, and Postmates consuming a chunk of the job market are part of the gig economy, and many earn their primary income through contracting and or freelancing. These people need an income that they can live on just as much as anyone else, and wage policies don't do much to help them. Secondly, it's important to remember that labor is a business expense, and while we can debate about which industries can afford to pay a living wage and whether or not this burden is overstated, everyone can agree that businesses have an interest in keeping their expenses to a minimum, and therefore will almost always fight tooth and nail against enforced wage increases. But even if a higher wage does get passed, we have to remember that $15 an hour which is equivalent to about $25,000 annually, is just not enough for most people to live on. In fact, the annual cost of living for a family of two ranges anywhere from an average of $40,000 in some states to over $65,000 in other states. And of course, even within those states, there's going to be a lot of variance depending on what area you're in. But sometimes you need to be in a certain area in order to find any jobs. Many economists believe that the problem of low wages and the volatility of the job market are something that can only be addressed long-term through a basic income policy. An example of a basic income policy that's garnered quite a bit of popularity as of late is Universal Basic Income, a program where every adult citizen gets a paycheck from the government that covers their expenses, uh, living expenses unconditionally. Many have brought up reasonable concerns about the cost of such a program, saying that if we simply multiply Andrew Yang's thousand dollar month proposal, for example, by the number of citizens, will get an estimate well into the trillions. This is known as the gross cost. However, factoring in citizens who are paying more into the program than they're getting, we can arrive at the real cost. There are several ways to calculate this, because there are several different ways to implement a UBI. What kind of taxes do we fund it with? What programs does it replace? How much do we give everyone? The answer to all of these questions vary depending on who you ask. What's clear is that the most reasonable way to fund such a program is through high taxation on high income and perhaps middle income people. If the benefits and tax payments are a part of the same transaction, this is known as a negative income tax. Here's how a negative income tax would work. Anyone earning $0 of income gets a certain amount of money, let's say $16,000 a year, and let's call this the minimum threshold. As the income being earned increases, for example if you were to get a job, the tax benefits start to taper off. And eventually once you earn a certain amount of income, now instead of receiving benefits, you start paying into the system, so it just basically becomes a regular income tax. The rate at which this tapers off is called the marginal tax rate. 
So at a marginal tax rate of, let's say, 50%, you would lose 50 cents of benefits for every dollar that you earn. The cost and benefit of a negative income tax varies depending on what these two variables are, the minimum threshold and the marginal tax rate. A paper published by University of Michigan in 2015 offers some examples of what these two variables could be set at, and it also analyzes a ton of different effects of this policy. One of the proposals, which would get all citizens, including non-workers, above the poverty line, would require about $219 million in tax revenue. Now this sounds like a lot, but it could actually be covered entirely by eliminating redundant programs that would no longer be needed, such as housing aid, school food programs, earned income tax credit, and things like that. However, the cost of living for an average family of two is about three to four times the poverty rate, depending on location. So for this article's goal in particular, since we're not just trying to cover the poverty line, we're trying to cover the entire cost of living, the tax would need to be much more generous. One of the other proposals placed the minimum threshold at 133% of poverty and had a 33% marginal tax rate, and that one would cost about $635 billion, but it would successfully put most working Americans above or close to the amount that it costs to live. So clearly, negative income tax could have a very high cost, but it is a solution that could reach our goal of ensuring financial stability for everyone. One potential concern about this, other than cost, however, is the potential disincentive to work. And this is something that comes up whenever people talk about any sort of basic income program, is that if you have a paycheck that is substantial enough to live on every month and you're not doing anything to earn it, then why would you get a job? However, most basic income experiments that have been tried so far haven't shown any significant loss of employment which implies that other motivations, such as a desire for additional income or an enjoyment of work, tend to keep people on the job whether it's required for them to live or not. We can't make strong conclusions based on this evidence, however, because it's important to remember that all of these experiments were temporary, and therefore people did know that they'd have to stick with their jobs long term. So that could have provided an alternate reason that they stuck with their jobs. So clearly there are caveats when you factor in the cost and the potential disincentive to work, but I would argue that a negative income tax is absolutely worth considering. Alternatively, a cheaper yet similar solution would be to take advantage of a currently existing program, expanding the earned income tax credit into a cost-of-living refund. Currently, the EITC provides a tax refund that tapers off with income just like a negative income tax, but specifically goes to working citizens instead of all citizens, which for the purposes of this episode of Solutions, is perfectly fine. It also mostly goes towards families with children, although Biden's COVID stimulus bill does expand benefits for childless individuals this year. The EITC provides a meaningful benefit for workers, but it doesn't help many people cover the cost of living. If it was expanded to similar rates as the negative income tax and was paid out monthly, while still having the same qualifications of income and household size, it could, theoretically, be an incredibly effective solution, and it has the benefit of being a cheaper cost as well as the fact that it expands upon an existing program without having to create a new one, and would probably, for that reason, be far more politically viable than a negative income tax. In conclusion, what can be done? Well, ultimately, what we would like to see 
would be a raise in the federal minimum wage, ideally to $15 an hour. But for reasons that we discussed, this is a politically difficult task, which leaves us uh, to contemplate other options. Yes. And some of those other options include unionization and passing things on the local and state levels, having other ideas like wage boards to um, really nail it down on the per industry level. And so there's lots of different creative solutions for wages in particular. In addition to that, we are also recognizing that, you know, not everyone earns a wage. We're transitioning into more of a gig economy. So we need ways to provide for people who don't have that stable work environment. And so we talked about negative income tax with regards to that and expanding the earned income tax credit to sort of provide just a, you know, a base level for a lot of these workers. These future policies that we may hope to see enacted to compensate for those that aren't earning a wage, negative income tax, universal basic income, at this moment in time, they seem very abstract, but there's something that everybody should at least consider moving forward in terms of helping everybody live a financially stable life, the implementation of which will be interesting to see in the future, uh, if that's a future that comes to pass. Yeah, totally. So Elias, uh, how about, uh, seems like we hit all the points here. How about them socials? (laughs) How about them? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How about the socials? Um, Hit them with the socials. Totally, yeah. So um, thank you all for listening. Thank you for checking this out and hearing our ideas about this. We know it was definitely one of our more policy-focused and a little bit more technical episode. Um, We think we established some pretty good uh, solutions here for a pretty pressing problem that has been an issue for a long time. And so if you want to see more from us, if you want to be notified of our fourth episode when that comes out or have any ideas you want us to consider um, or just want to, you know, chat or anything like that, We have a Discord server that's going to be uh, linked in the description and also going to be linked in the article. You can catch all of our written articles that we've done at medium.com slash solutions or on the subreddit at r slash solutions podcast. We also have a presence on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter if you want to follow us there and interact with us. And yeah, we are looking forward to being more engage with the community and and hoping that you know we can inspire others to be critical thinkers on all of these issues so thank you all for listening and we will see you in the next one goodbye everyone